And it should be live. Welcome to the Home Lab Show episode. What is the episode number again? Episode, <laughs> episode nine. nine. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have to restore from backup. That's uh Yeah. And, and I think my um I think my brain is suspended and is slowly waking up um in the morning as the caffeine takes effect. But um, you know, we have a podcast and we're on episode nine. This is the Home Lab Show. I'm Jay LaCroix. And this is Tom Lawrence. And Raid is not a backup. That is what we titled this show to be. Um, yeah. Raid is resiliency. I like to get that out there right away. Catastrophic failures. If you're in tech long enough, you will not only witness one, but you'll witness many. And epic and catastrophic might even be more descriptive. Um, we've seen uh, power surges fry arrays and boards and everything else. So you can't just say, yeah. hey, it's on a bunch of disks. Isn't it fine? And I, I always feel terrible when people lose data. So I, I like to do as much as I can because it's the back end of the conversation is so hard to have, you know, not that it's as serious as an actual medical condition, but you know, that, that moment where the doctor walks out and say, I have bad news. Yeah. <laughs> no one really wants to deliver it like that, but I have right. bad news. Sometimes all those drives are melted. The controller boards are destroyed. This, these are going to be super expensive or maybe even impossible um, to recover. So the goal of this is to, once you've built out, you put all that effort into your home lab, how to get all that data somewhere else, whether, you right. know, it's your photos and photos are a big piece of this. A lot of people, you know, fair and rightly so because of privacy concerns, start saving all their own photos and yep. this puts you at risk. Um you know, to make sure you, okay, cool. I backed up all the kids' photos, right? Well, no, I took them on my phone or my camera, moved them to a RAID array, and now it's backed up. And that yeah. is where the misconceptions begin. I think this is one of those situations where there's no one uh, right way to handle this. There's plenty of wrong ways, though. Like, we could yeah. clearly define the wrong ways of handling this, but how you handle it um, if you follow certain criteria, whatever works best for you within your budget and your capabilities is fine. If it offers the, you know, true actual redundancy, I don't really care what service you use. And we're going to talk about um, several aspects of this in this episode, but um, I don't want this to be like, uh, these are the only things that you should ever consider. Right. Part of the um, thing here is that, well, there's all kinds of stuff out there to try of varying levels of quality and there's pros and cons to everything. So ultimately, um, you know, I don't care if people agree with me um, because there's, you know, there's pros and cons. I mentioned yeah. there's good things and bad things. Um, there's more than one right way to back up. One thing that's important, though, an untested backup is just wishful thinking. <laughs> so <laughs> at the end of all this test backups, test, doing, and restore. So uh, apply that to any product we talk about, any process we talk about here. Always think about that piece of it. <laughs> I, mean, I need to underscore that because I have seen plenty of times where someone has a really good backup strategy where I'm looking at it like, that's impressive. You really thought about everything. You you have a clear system here. Um, you know, that's awesome, but they didn't test it. And then um, it can't restore. I mean, you could back up garbage. You could back up good data. It, it is what it is. I mean, sure, we'll talk about it later. Like, you know, it can become garbage, but um, what you have data that's backed up, it's either going to be useful backup or not. Um, and, and what, as an aside, one of the aspects of this is that um, this is a topic that Tom and I felt we definitely need to discuss. And we're getting very close to um, running out of high level things to talk about um, where we can start deep diving into individual technologies, which I'm especially looking forward to, but we kind of feel like it's really great if someone can just watch this or listen to this podcast from the, you know, episode zero on up, everything builds on the, on the next, the topics that we cover. Um, a lot of this stuff doesn't change, but we add new stuff as we go along. So I think backups are a very important foundational topic. And then we can start deep diving, which is going to be especially fun. For sure. That is a, uh, Definitely, when we start deep diving into it, we are going to do a lot of those singular topics where we dive into a very specific product and go deep. We just wanted to get these first. It looks like the, the, you know this many episodes covers the broad topics, but then again, in the future, there may be more broad topic episodes. But don't worry, we're not running out of things or ideas. Matter of fact, it, the hardest part is landing them because we have such a 
large uh, idea board going on between me and Jay is figuring yeah. out which ones we want to cover. <laughs> we, it's like every time we do an episode, I think of like five things additional that I'd like to talk about. But then it's like, well, yeah, we kind of need to cover some uh, foundational things before we can talk about that. Like I really wanted to talk about Ansible and I will in full detail in an episode. I don't know which one, but we covered it and we talked about it from a high level. And I think it's time when we circle back around to it, let's talk about it in more detail so someone can understand, is this a good fit for me? Is this something that I want yep. to use? We'll talk about the pros and cons. <clears throat> and that'll enable our audience to make the decision on if this technology we're covering in that particular episode resonates with them and their use case. And if it does, they'll have all the details they need to get started with it. And um, one thing I think we should really kind of talk about before we get too far into the topic is why RAID is not a backup in particular, because there are people out there that do feel that way. And I could come up with a lot of reasons. I'm going to give you some of my um, more important ones, in my opinion. Um, I think one of the reasons that I think it's very important to not consider RAID backup is the fact that, well, I guess actually we should probably talk about what RAID is. I know everyone is, you know, probably knows that or the majority. Um, basically, you have more than one hard drive and you could have them, you know, mirrored. So whatever is on the first drive is automatically on the other. So if the first drive fails, you know, you still have the second. You could do, and there's other levels of RAID, you know, RAID zero, um, zero redundancy. That's how I remember that one. Yeah. Uh, I'd never use it. Um, I, I don't see an ed a use case anymore by combining drives that if one dies, you know, you lose what's on both. RAID one is a mirror, you know, what's on disk one is on disk two. So if your main hard drive dies, you could just boot from the second. You have, you have RAID five, for example, um, you can, you know, three or more drives, one can die because there's one disk worth of parity. Meaning if you have three 500 gig drives, you don't have, you know, 1500 gigabytes, you have a terabyte, you have a thousand um, gigabytes, essentially. Um, I know I'm a little off because of, you know, the 1024 thing, but the, but you can lose a drive. And then with RAID 6, you can lose two drives, but, you know, you also have two disks of uh, parity, so you have a lot less space to work with. So it sounds great because you could lose a disk and there's a, I don't want to say a decent chance you won't lose data, but there's a possibility that you won't lose data, which is great. But um, where I think that breaks down is that the, um, the environment that causes a drive to fail, there's a decent chance it could cause other things to fail too. So if you get a power surge, like Tom mentioned earlier, that power surge isn't thinking at all, but especially not thinking, I hate that drive in particular. I'm going to wipe out that one drive because it just rubs me the wrong way. No, it's going to zap multiple things your motherboard could fry your drive controller could fry all your hard drives can fry and then if you have even a usb hard drive plugged into your server or computer maybe the power surge will hit that too um or maybe you get a, a crypto um or not a yeah like one of those crypto locker things on your uh, server and you don't have versioned backups you just you know you have your external hard drive plugged in and it gets your data on your RAID, it gets your data on the um, external hard drive as well because it, well, it's attached. Um, ultimately, I think the, the biggest takeaway though is the environment, like I mentioned, that caused a drive to fail can cause other drives to fail. And in addition to that, I've also seen situations where someone buys you know, every drive in their RAID at the same time, which means it's possible it came from the same assembly line, uh, maybe there was something going on there um, and one drive fails, the other drive fails right after it because uh, something in the way um, in the manufacturing process just wasn't quite um, up to speed or something. And then, you know, every drive fails all at once. It can happen. So RAID is great when it does make sense. If you have the ability to benefit from it, I don't see a reason why not, but definitely have backups. And that's going to be the nature of today's show. Yes. And the secondary problem with that is if you have all of your data available and online, that also presents a problem if mass corruption occurs, because, you know, this is frequently in the business market where you see a lot of ransomware attacks on these companies. They have a pool of data. It's active and online. Even if they have a backup to it, um, wiping out that data because it may not have the ability to quickly roll back, such as a ZFS snapshot would be able to do because they can't roll it back immediately. Now you've corrupted 
all of the data at once. And that becomes another problem where RAID doesn't save you in any manner and you go back to having to restore from backups. Uh, so these are, you know, a couple of those factors you really have to think about. And, you know, the resiliency part is really important. And the part that Jay mentioned is also relatively important as well. If you can, and I've done this when we've bought large arrays, uh, sometimes we buy half the drives from one vendor and half the drives from another vendor, hoping the serial numbers aren't one off because if a drive has a bad run, this can actually contribute. And you've watched RAID arrays, unfortunately, um, especially if, if you look at the way some people don't build them properly, uh, there will be too much taxing going on the other drives to rebuild the one failed drive. And one failed drive may have failed because it was you know mismanufactured, had a few bad sectors. Well, so did its neighbors. So now the extra pressure coming from the neighbors to go, okay, we got to rebuild our friend here that we just replaced. Now they go into a high load mode and that can cause the problems or the failure. So I kind of see like a cascading yeah. failure that's occurred. Um, it's always, if you have something that only have, offers one disk of redundancy, then you get nervous when you have to replace it because if it doesn't, it, it's either going to crash the RAID array or re rebuild it. And it's a cross your fingers. I hope it happens. Now, statistically, yes, we're, we're winning the game. I've replaced plenty of single uh, drives that were single redundancy and went really well, but I can't guarantee that. And how important is your data to you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely agree. I've, I've seen that situation and I feel so anxious when I'm waiting for a RAID array to rebuild. I'm like, will it? I, I think it will. It's probably a decent chance it will, but I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll have another disk fail before it finishes rebuilding. Then it's a lost cause at that point. Um, that's that's definitely happened. Um, and it, it just makes you feel really nervous because you're like, uh, I don't know what's going to happen here. So I hope it works. Um, but that's not a feeling that you want to feel at all when your data is very important to you. Right. Absolutely. So, sorry, go ahead. Now I would say, let's start with where to put it. And I, I think, I mean, uh, granted, don't get me wrong. It's awesome if you have a second location where you can store data. You have two houses, you have a friend's house, you have a family member who's willing to house your data. That's cool and awesome. But realistically, not everybody has that as an option. Uh, so where yeah. should we, what, what's a good cloud service to put our data in that's uh, good? I, and I say good for like the home lab market and the people that we're trying to help here because it's going to have to be very reasonably priced. It's going to have to um, be something we've used and have experience with. And by the way, they're not a sponsor of this show in any way. This is our opinion and not their opinion. <laughs> yeah, I like Backblaze for, um, for my use case. And I'll, I'll, I'll walk the audience through um, my my system in a moment. But what I like about Backblaze is how you know how cheap it is, and it, it's so affordable that it kind of made me nervous at first. I'm like, okay, well, Backblaze is a reputable company, and they do a lot of hard drive testing. Like they 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 actually have reports about like the quality of drives and failure rates and things like that. So even if you uh, decide not to use Backblaze, reading their reports is still a very useful thing to check out. Um, so they have, you know, good reputation in the industry and it is just affordable. And I think that's a very important part. Obviously, um, stability is more important, right? Because if it's cheap and you, you know, you can't rely on it and it could, the whole service can fall over tomorrow. Okay. Not a good um, idea, but I feel like Backblaze has been stable and I back up so much that it, I think it cost me about 50 us dollars a month. Now, the thing is, you have to understand how hard it is to reach $50 a month. It's, <laughs> it's a lot. It, it is a lot of money. You know, some people are probably listening to this like, well, $50 a month. Uh, yeah, that's outrageous. But understand that I have like um, 4K video going up there right now since I've started up, you know, updating my channel to 4K. We're talking about a serious amount of data. I want to say it's somewhere between eight and 10 terabytes or more that I have up there, but I'm, I, I don't have it in front of me. There's a lot of data. So then if you think about it like that, $50 isn't all that much when I have that much stuff up there. Um, that's pretty affordable. Now, um, the thing about Backblaze and some of these other services is that they give you a place to put it, to put your data, but they don't necessarily provide you with the, the method to get it there. Right, because so we specifically we are talking about bucket storage. As yep. I, I just wanna make sure no one's uh, too confused because they do offer some PC backup stuff. That's separate. We're talking about B2 bucket storage. B2, that's, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That is specifically what we're talking about. So they give you a place to put it, but they don't necessarily, like I mentioned, provide you with the means. So it's up to you 
to find a utility to get the data there. Um, thankfully, most um, network attached storage solutions like Synology and I think probably all of them, I don't want to say all of them, but I think that's true. They support that as an endpoint. So you could send your, you could have your NAS send your data there. And yeah. That works. Um, I did a tutorial with TrueNAS. It's on my YouTube channel for this. Um, TrueNAS is well integrated with not just Backblaze, but many others. I've seen someone mentioned S3 in the chat. Um, you do have options for, uh, of course, the Amazon S3, Azure Blob yeah. Storage. Um, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Wasabi. We did a little bit of testing Wasabi. I was confused about how the permissions work, but it does look like a reasonable competitor to Backblaze. Not enough to make me want to switch from Backblaze, but there's plenty of them out there. But uh, so, like I said, Synology, TrueNAS, and many of the companies uh, offer that as a target. They offer B2 bucket storage as a target. And if you have a backup system that is looking for an S3 compatible target, um, that is something they offer with Backblaze. So B2 is their bucket standard, is the protocol they use to talk to the bucket. Um, S3 is the made popular by Amazon, but that's actually an open protocol uh, that other companies can use. So Backblaze does offer S3 connectivity. They have some specific configuration parameters you need to use. So you can substitute the two back and forth. Um, just FYI for people wondering on that. So if you have a device that has it built in, there's a lot of flexibility you can have. Yep. And when I think of um, this object storage technology, um, I think it's important to differentiate it from like a hard, you know, a hard disk, right? Because with a hard drive, you have a file system. You can store your data on there. You have um, metadata. You know, you have permissions. You have like date, the date of, uh, you know, when it was last modified, and, and you know, all kinds of different things. Um, with block store, excuse me, object storage, for the most part, it's a, it's almost like a key value pair. You have a name and an object. So you have a file. It has a name. You have a bucket to put it in. Um, the object has a name. So the object um, could be a picture, you're putting a picture up there or all of your pictures. So you're not gonna retain your permissions or anything like that, but you do retain the file in its you know true form. So that's the whole point. We want backups to have all of our stuff. We, we don't want anything to flip and then the file get corrupted. We want it to be there and be in its pure form. Name and object, that's what it is. Um, there are ways, and this is why it gets confusing, um, there, there are ways to mount it as a disk. It's not a disk. You can force it to kind of act like that with AWS and the S3 technology. There's a way to actually um, make it look like a Linux file system, even though it isn't, um, which confuses people because they might see that and be like, well, it looks like a file system of any other kind. Why can't I change the permissions on it? Well, it's not quite that simple. So you think of this as a bucket. You can have a bucket for videos, a bucket for music or pictures, documents, whatever, and categorize that way. And then in each one, you just, well, you have your data. So how do you get the data there? Well, we already mentioned net network attached storage. Um, that's a, an obvious answer. If you have that already, you could probably hook right into that. It's usually pretty easy to do. Um, but you know, maybe you don't even have a NAS. I'm pretty sure our clone supports Backblaze, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a long time. Um, our clone is more of a manual system. So if you had like a, a Linux server that had your files, maybe you're not using a NAS and you just kind of maybe rolling your own on Debian or something, you have a NFS share, you want to get that data backed up, you could um, use our clone to send that data to uh, a service like Backblaze yes. via the command line. You could put it in like a bash script. You can have it in cron. You could maybe build some email notification around it. So you don't really have to use a specific platform in our clone. Last I checked, it supports a ridiculous number of uh, services. So yes, our clone can talk B2 and uh, Backblaze B2 provides their own tooling so you can integrate into your own scripts and things like that. So if you want to do it all from the command line in Linux, I believe they have Windows clients as well. Uh, so th there's a lot of automation that can be built around that. Um, and our clone is also the backend for TrueNAS. So, so TrueNAS is putting a web UI essentially on our clone uh, to be able to you know, manage that. And they add the options for encryption because uh, be, and I know people, one of the reasons they go for a lot of self-hosted options, and rightfully so, is because they're like, well, I don't want to just take all my family photos and throw them in some cloud provider that next week has a security incident that makes them a public cloud provider. <laughs> and, yeah. Nobody but you're not, the way, you're not the right way to use that term. But yes, the very public cloud provider, like, maybe. <laughs> I'm going to buy this stock photo for this project. And why is my family there? Um, how yeah. did they this photo? <laughs> um, that'd be pretty embarrassing. Um Right. I think we gotta we have to talk about encryption. Um, 
I think that there's an important mindset here because there always seems to be this mindset. I'm not saying it's uh, an incorrect mindset. We want things to be encrypted, but the question is like, whose responsibility is it? Now, it's usually, um, it's often helpful to push the liability to a service because if we pay for a service, we're kind of like shifting liability in a way because we're paying for a service that's going to handle something for us. It's going to handle the backups. We trust this service. We're going to use this service. And I don't. I could feel a little bit more comfortable because I trust it. Um, and maybe we want to trust that service with encryption. Maybe we don't. Maybe they have strong encryption. Maybe they don't. But if you encrypt it yourself before you send it up to the, you know, a cloud service or any other service, now what that means is that you are in control. Obviously, you don't want to lose your encryption key because that would be very bad. Nobody can help you get that back. But you know, you can encrypt it yourself and send it up there. And then you don't really care at that point if the target service even supports encryption at all. It's okay if they don't, because you can take care of that. You can encrypt it yourself before you send it up there. And even if the service supports encryption, you might still want to encrypt it yourself because maybe you've researched the, um, you know, the, the, the type of encryption that it is you want to use and the strength of that and you feel comfortable with a specific type of encryption, then you can make sure you're using that. You have the key. The key never, I mean, obviously don't put the key in the backup when it gets sent up there. Um, It'd be still, it's encrypted. It's hard to get that, even to see what that key is. But still, if something in transmission gets seen or there's a man in the middle or something, um, you may as well just not encrypt it. But as long as you don't do that and you keep the key somewhere safe, multiple different places, because again, you lose the key, your data is useless. You can send it up there that way, and then you have full control. So if Backblaze supports encryption or they don't, you don't care. So that's something to keep in mind that you might want to take control of that. You may not, depending on the the service that you're using. You have to um, understand what they're using. Are you comfortable with it? Do you trust it? And make the decision that's right for you and your data on who should be responsible for that encryption. And to that note, you know, one of the more tragic incidents was an accounting firm that called us because they had had a a full loss, a fire happened in the building. Good news is they had the backup. They had the username and password to log into the backup account. Then they also properly followed procedures and had an encryption key, an AES type key that went with the backup. So when you downloaded it and they did this for compliance, it was encrypted at the endpoint prior to sending full compliance, all done properly by this other IT person who couldn't recover it. The reason they couldn't recover it and is what they were hoping we could help with uh, was trying to get the uh, key off the melted or well, partially melted computer. What they had done, and this is actually something I've seen more than once when we've taken over uh, for clients, they stored because the key being so long and high entropy, they stored it on the desktop of the server thinking, well, if someone has access to the server, you know, then they'd have the backup. So we didn't think it's a big deal to save it on a server until you're trying to do a full image restore of the server. And you can't get the image for the server because the password to decrypt the image for the server was only on the server. And this is actually a common scenario where, you know, you have all your backup keys and you're backing up your own computer and you're like, this is where I also keep the keys because I don't trust putting them somewhere. And this can be a real challenge. So I can't tell you how important it is and how many times this is overlooked uh, out in the field when we've seen this. Like Jay said, back up those encryption keys, use the encryption, but then make sure you are very aware of where those keys are. As a matter of fact, when you walk through your restore plan, um, as I said, an untested backup is just wishful thinking. So as you walk through your restore plan, you know, think about it, turn your computer off and try to restore something without the computer you set up to encrypt it. Walk through the process. Even if you don't go through the full restore the first time when you're kind of table talking this out, you know, all right, here's step one, log into the backup account, make sure we got credentials. Step two, where's this data going to land? All right, great. Step three, decrypt data. If that's where you fail, then stop and look at your process before you have a failure. Right. Yep. Absolutely. We can, we could probably make an entire episode about horror stories, honestly. Like, like I've, I've heard it all and I've seen it all and mm-hmm. I've looked at the reaction and, and the, the anxiety that the sysadmin feels when they, they see the fact that this isn't going to work. Like, like this is not going to be readable. I cannot restore this. And, and that is, and that is not something you want to feel. That is not something you want to experience. Um, you, you definitely want to make sure you test it. I understand everyone's busy. Um, especially nowadays, there's all kinds of craziness going on, but test your backups. Absolutely, yep. test your backups. Um, one thing I want to talk about is sync thing, but I want to be careful 
It's not a backup service. And I don't right. mean to imply that it is. It's absolutely not. But SyncThing is something that could be part of your overall system. Now, SyncThing, you could use it for whatever you want, but its main purpose is to sync more than one computer or server, you know, two different sources from one to the other. So if you change um, a file on one, it gets synced to the other and vice versa. That That's great. Um, now that isn't backup necessarily because, you know, in my case, I have SyncThing on all of my um, laptops and my desktop. And that's great because if the hard drive fails in any one of my computers, I'm not really so worried about it because I have all the same data on everything else. However, if a tornado obliterates my house or a fire flood or something just, you know, hits all of my computers, all my laptops, then SyncThing isn't really going to be all that helpful. It can help in that situation, but it shouldn't be relied on, but it is a great way to get data from one point to another. And that's its main use case. And I definitely wanted to uh, mention that. Well, and it's part of the strategy, like even what we use here with SyncThing and real-time backups. And, you know, the short um, synopsis, so to speak, of what SyncThing is, is real-time file synchronization. Picture something like Dropbox or Microsoft's OneDrive, but more stable. <laughs> right. The nice thing with SyncThing is there's a lot of times when data isn't just important. I need those changes not backed up tonight. I'd like them backed up in real-time or then synchronized in real time. And part of the strategy that is common where you have a file system like this is also to synchronize it off-site at the same time. So I have my on-site servers and my off-site servers. And as data gets dropped into certain folders, it's immediately synchronized. And for you know those of you that follow some of my other YouTube videos, you know I use a lot of Unify. Well, we make changes constantly with Unify. I don't have I don't want to wait till tonight to get those changes fixed. I want those changes done right away. So it's constantly exporting the data. It's constantly synchronizing it. So on a regular schedule, SyncThing can then go ahead and take over and move that data where it needs to be. Now, someone pointed out uh, in the chat, and rightfully so, you want to have some type of immutable offline source. This is where you have two options with SyncThing being part of those options where you have revisioning it does. So as a file's gets changed, or let's say someone deletes a lot of files or modifies a lot of files, you know, crypto ransomware type scenario, there is the option to have revisions. The second thing is wherever it's landing should have something. And I use TrueNAS as an example, but it's also supported in other platforms, uh, snapshots that give you points in time by which I can restore. So if I know all the files got corrupted at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday and I have a snapshot from 8 a.m., I can just roll back to 8 a.m. or hover you know, part of your snapshot strategy. This is all part of your real-time strategy you're thinking about when you're doing this, because it's not just like set the backups and we should all set them at 1 a.m. and that's it. So much occurs during the day and at so many right. of these businesses we service, there's a constant flow of data and the cost is predicted based on, you know, how much is it going to cost you to lose a day's worth of data? Well, I have 50 employees in the office. So that means 50 employees worth of work can be lost if I don't have a strategy that has me backing up faster. That's why these real-time tools such as ThinkThing kind of come into play and become a very important component in there to make sure you're synchronizing the data or even snapshotting it every half hour or whatever that strategy is. It's, it's figuring out where your risk tolerance is uh, for your data. You know, and if it's at home, how often are you uh, uploading uh, movies or data or anything to your data sets that's important to you? Maybe you kick off a backup um, right away when you're done downloading it, but, you know, you don't go on vacation every week, so you don't have that many to add every week to the photo set. You know, you can think about different strategies like that. The bigger thing is automation is one of the things that SyncThing offers because I put it in a folder. I don't think about it. It just is now backed up. So when it's important to me, I save it to SyncThing. I save it to the folder, I should say, is SyncThing is synchronizing. And then I just know it's everywhere I need it to be confidently <laughs> without having to remember to do anything else. And, and a couple things about SyncThing I want to mention. Um, implementation is key. And that's a very clever way of implementing it. And I use a very similar um, you know, style here, actually, with, with uh, snapshots and everything. Um, now, one thing to, to keep in mind, I don't even care what synchronization utility you use, and there's others. You right. know, SyncThing is not the only one. Make darn sure NTP works. Make sure all of your computers, your laptops, desktops, your servers, whatever you're syncing with SyncThing, NTP, the network time protocol, must be working. Because if, the, if different computers have like um, non-synchronized clocks, 
Whatever your syncing solution happens to be, they will all have problems, every single one of them, because they're going by the timestamp most of the time, at least as far as I know, all of them go by that. And if your time is not correct on your systems, you could literally have a situation where you have duplicated files because it doesn't really know which version is the latest. So make sure before you install something like SyncThing, NTP works. Just check the time on all your computers and servers. That's a good idea to do. Now, when it comes to SyncThing, um, you could be very creative with it. Someone in the live stream mentioned that SyncThing can be a backup if the you know destination is offsite. So in that situation, you know, SyncThing isn't necessarily meant to be a backup solution. It's a syncing solution, but it's up to you how you implement it. You can do that. You, you can um, responsibly, you know, you don't want anything just wide open or anything like that, but you can sync it to a um, cloud server or, you know, a, a friend's server or something, whatever the endpoint happens to be. And yeah, you're making it into that. Um, now we can have arguments about like, you know, is that the best way? It, it's fine. Um, but but you have to have multiple versions of things. But creativity, I mean, you could you have full creativity here. Like, for example, I've mentioned this, I think, in a previous episode, my retro pies use sync things. So if I'm playing Super Mario World on one TV um, and I save my game and I just beat a certain level and then I go to a different TV power on that RetroPie and resume Super Mario World, I have the same save file because SyncThing is making sure that every single emulation console has that. And yeah, I even have a data set in, um, in uh, TrueNAS for this. So if I lose a save file for one of my games, I could get it back. So you could use it for whatever you want. Some people even install it on their phone. So anytime they take a picture, it's automatically um, on their computer and on their server which is pretty cool, especially if you want to edit that photo before you send it to someone. There's all kinds of creative things that you can do with uh, something like SyncThing. Um, for myself personally, the way that I do it is I have um, almost kind of like the star topology methodology with this, where all of my laptops, desktops, or whatever are all syncing to one thing. So I have my TrueNAS server in the center, and I can only use, and this is why this works, I can only use one computer at a time. So I can save a file on my laptop and I can switch over to my desktop. So what's going to happen is that file from my laptop will sync to the TrueNAS server, the central sync thing um, service, and then that file will be sent over to my desktop. Now you can sync with sync thing everything to everything. I could have my desktop and my laptop sync directly to each other. I could totally do that. But it, it just works for me where I make TrueNAS the single source of truth for everything. Everything syncs to that. The data sets are there. The snapshots are there. There's that one single um, source. Like I mentioned, that works well for me. And that's how I use it. But also, since my TrueNAS server, and this is where it comes full circle, is backing up to Backblaze off-site, then my server has everything. And I do check this, by the way, because you do, you do have to check to make sure like the sync solution didn't quietly fail. But um, so everything goes to the central source. That central source also has a schedule where it just starts um, uploading that to Backblaze. So then Backblaze also has a copy of that. So SyncThing just handles making sure the data is there to be sent. And then as long as you know there's no failures in the syncing process, no failures in the upload process, it works pretty well for me. And kind of related to this, uh, you know, another thing that's often important is synchronizing all the backups for your firewalls or any of the other devices you have, because PFSense is a great example. You know, you just get an XML file when you're done. A lot of firewalls have this. So there's a config backup that has all the settings because it's easy to grab the ISO and reload, untangle, reload PFSense or OpenSense or whatever you're using. And then once you have it reloaded, you just restore your config file and put it back. Same thing's great because you can have a folder, say this is the folder where these files are kept. By the way, please encrypt these files because they have the keys to the kingdom inside of them, especially yeah. the PFSense XML file. You know, if someone else got a hold of that, they would have your VPN information if you had a VPN set up, for example. But you'd be able to take that, uh, grab those config files, and sync things is a great way to easily replicate them to the different uh, secure locations that you've configured uh, to set up. So it's another you know, part of the strategy. So we're going to get into the imaging side of the strategy yeah. as well, because there's a place for this as well. There, there really is. And, and Clonezilla is just one of my favorite solutions. I remember very early in my career, um, and this isn't like a knock on uh, Norton Ghost. It had its time. It's, it, it had its place. It was fine. Um, it had some quirks. It was a little rough, but it worked. Um, but when I 
worked for, no, I switched to another company and I was introduced to Clonezilla and this is still very early in my career. I was just blown away by how great it was. Um, so Clonezilla is basically something you can download as a, uh, you know, basically an ISO image. You can write it to a flash drive. You can boot your computer from it. And that that's called Clonezilla Live. And it's it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a Linux distribution that you can run live that has utilities you can use to take in an, it, basically an entire image of your hard disk. So you can restore that image. And I've used it just experimenting with it on uh, x86, you know, Max works fine. Windows machines works fine. In fact, if you are backing up a Windows machine, there's even an option in there to remove the, um, I think it's the Hibernate file, essentially. Um, it'll regenerate that anyway. So, um, I mean, why include that in your image? It's just going to waste space. So there's all kinds of different options you can tweak that are pretty powerful, and it creates an image. And you could store that image via Clonezilla Live on another flash drive, an external hard drive, a Samba share, an NFS share. You can even go disk to disk. Like if you have, let's just say you have a 500 gigabyte hard drive and you want to go to a one terabyte, you could literally have it copy that entire drive, your 500 gig drive to the new drive that's, you know, one terabyte essentially. And you could then resize the file system after the fact to take advantage of that extra space. Um, another thing that I have used Clonezilla for um, several times is for recovery. I had, um, and this is probably like a very special case, but it's happened a few times where a computer doesn't boot and I just can't get it to boot. I actually had a server that didn't boot once because the company didn't even back up anything. They're kind of in a panic. So I took an image of the hard drive. Um, I mean, it wasn't like the hard drive failed so hard that the BIOS wouldn't see it. It's just one of those situations where it, it has like bad sectors, it, it can't boot, but you can still read the data. And I took an image of it and I restored it onto a brand new drive. And there's an option in Clonezilla where you could tell it to, um, if, if you encounter an error, just, just skip that error and keep, keep cloning the drive. It's very important to check that. And then luckily for me, um, with this Windows server, I you know booted it. Of course, it's not gonna boot because, um, well, it, I mean, it had a bad sector. There's stuff that it can't read. And then it did, I did a file system check and it was actually able to repair itself and then boot fine and it was saved. Now, obviously, that company should have had a backup. They should have had an image like before this happened. I'm not going to go there, but there's all kinds of use cases for um, Clonezilla Live. I really like it quite a bit. Another thing you can do is you could create an all-in-one recovery USB key that has Clonezilla you know, built in with the image of a you know, computer built in where you can literally boot from it and it'll ask you, are you sure you want to continue? Press Y and then enter. It re-images the entire thing. Um, so you can literally have your own like recovery disk for a computer or server that's self-contained. Now, the other use case for Clonezilla is uh, not the live version. There's a server version. I don't know if they're still calling it this. It's been a long time. DRBL, I think they want you to pronounce it durable, which is kind of weird. But essentially, it's setting up a Clonezilla server so your computers and servers can pixie boot. And you could actually, you know, without you know, booting from a USB flash drive, have it boot from the network, grab the image, similar to Norton Ghost, how that used to be. And a lot of people like that. Now, I, I'll say this, I don't really care for that use case so much. And I'll tell you why. I found that in my experience, maintaining a Clonezilla server just seems to be more work than the value that you get out of it. And that's not to say that there's not some good features there. I mean, multicasting your images and pixie booting is, is, you know, it's cool. But to set that up and maintain it, especially in my experience where I, I found like it kept changing, I kept having to redo things. It just uh, became a chore to keep up on. I had like videos on my YouTube channel that were about setting up a Clonezilla server very early in my channel's life. And um, it, it just became a chore to maintain. And keep in mind, I create videos on Arch Linux, a rolling distribution, and I found that easier than making videos about Clonezilla server. So what I have found works well, in my opinion, is that you have a um, central file storage, a Samba server, an NFS server, and then you just create um, one or more Clonezilla Live flash drives, just boot from it, tell it where it can find the image, it's going to pull it from the network, um, I think that's great. Another thing you could do is you could load the Clonezilla uh, flash drive in memory to where after you boot, you could remove it. 
and it's just running off a of RAM. And then I, I could take it from computer to computer, booting it or booting them into Clonezilla Live off of one flash drive, and they're all pulling the image down all at once. And Tom, I think you have some experience with uh, blasting an image onto a bunch of computers. Yeah. So when you know this goes back quite a number of years, we would often help with. Um, I don't know if anyone on here would be familiar with PenguinCon, but it's a big sci-fi Linux event that happens here in Michigan and the Greater Detroit area. Um, up until well, in the before times, it happened annually for the last number of years. But the um, we helped set up a lot of their Linux laptops. They would basically have one loaded with all the different functionality they wanted. And then we would use uh, Clonezilla, which has got some cool features for mass cloning. Uh, it, so you can set one as a source and then use multicasting to clone to many, many at a time. Uh, it's definitely a, been a great tool that we've been using for quite a, quite a number of years for doing things. The one hang up that some people, if you start using this in the Windows world, is Clonezilla does fall short of some of the commercial options that offer dissimilar hardware restores, oh, which yeah. is becoming less of an issue with Windows 10 because it handles dealing with dissimilar hardware much better than previous versions of Windows. Um, but it's not like a native feature where it, it can do the prepping for that. Um, so it's definitely, it, it may not be the absolute best for tool for every situation when it comes to Windows, but it's solid on Linux. And as I typed in the comments, but want to repeat here that yes, it's great for, and I have a video on this, when you're moving hypervisors, you're, you're on a hypervisor and you want to switch to a different type of hypervisor, but the two won't talk to each other natively, as in I can't export the VM and natively import it into the next type of hypervisor because they're dissimilar. Um, that's where Clonezilla is actually really, we've used it to move from VMware to XCPNG. Uh, we've moved people from Hyper-V to XCPNG and just popped in the Clonezilla, booted it up and migration happens. Uh, it's It's been pretty solid for those use cases, especially for, you know, just I need to clone a Linux workload or Linux server and get it over there. Uh, the two talk to each other quite well. And it, it's been a really saving tool for that. Yeah, I, I want to, yeah, I'll mention a few things about the Windows side of things, because early in my career, that's what I was using it for, actually, was uh, deploying Windows installations. And I did find a workflow that allows me to get around that those problems with Clonezilla, actually. But it's a, it's a workflow you have to think is, is you know, it's, it's a workflow. It, there's effort to put into this. But so the issue that I and I think you might be referring to this, is that um, if it's dissimilar hardware, you, it could blue screen when you restore an image. So you think about you have an old computer, it's time to buy a new one. Yay, great, new computer. But you, you would really rather not set up everything all over again. So with Linux, you know, just clone the hard drive or even just move the hard drive, honestly, to the new computer, and it usually works. Um, as long as you don't have anything that's expecting a very specific, um, you know, GPU and monitor configuration with a custom XOR config file, most people don't go that far. It's probably going to work just fine. Windows, on the other hand, will often blue screen because if anything is different, like if it feels like you're ripping the carpet out from underneath it um, and expecting it to still walk, it's going to stumble. And it, it's getting better. But what you can do is sysprep the instance before you move it, which um, you could use what's called a generalization. I think it's just called generalize and sysprep. And that kind of removes the things that are specific to that installation to make it so that it can yep. work on dissimilar hardware. The problem is you, uh, there's two issues with this actually. One is that, um, okay, so I'm losing my train of thought because it's Windows and not my forte. Okay, anyway, so the issue is going to be that um, you only have a limited number of times you can sysprep. I believe it was three. I don't know if it still is, which it, means- There's this registry key you have to flip after that too, so. Yeah, and I ran into that very frustrated. Um, and I had this awesome image. It had all the company's defaults in there. And, and I made several revisions because my thought process was I'll just keep improving it. And I came up with a versioning scheme. Okay, this is version one. Now I'm up to version two. You know, it was cool. Hit version three. This is awesome. I want to make a version four. Oh, I can't because there's a limit and they don't want you to sysprep more than three times. The other issue that I ran into is, um, you know, I, at the time, I, I don't know if it was like 60 gig or 80 gig, you know, that's the total hard drive size of the image. Um, and the image size is only going to be like what's used. So if you use like four gigs of that 60 gig um, hard drive, you, your image is going to be closer to what you used. But if that hard drive you're restoring it on is a 40 and your image was taken on a 60, it's not going to work because it's not going to go down. You could resize up 
So what I ended up doing was setting up a VirtualBox instance, and I gave it like a 20 gigabyte virtual disk. That's all. And I installed Windows on it and all the company's defaults I put in there. And then I did a VirtualBox snapshot before I sysprepped it. And I had infinite sysprepps at that point. I could, I, could, I could use sysprep 100 times. And then every time I would just roll back the snapshot in VirtualBox, that totally got around that problem. And it worked just great. And the fact that it was only a 20 gig virtual disk, it didn't really matter what size the target hard disk was because they're all, at least at that time, going to be higher than 20 gigabytes. So that's what I did. And then I would just expand the file system. I would take an image via VirtualBox by just booting the CloneZilla Live. Um, you know, sysprep after taking the snapshot, use CloneZilla Live, grab the image, and then I could just do however many deployments I want on dissimilar hardware, work just fine. But it took work to get, get it there. And is CloneZilla the best solution for Windows? Probably not. There's going to be other solutions that are better. And a Windows expert would probably tell you what those solutions are. But the point is, you, you could do all kinds of things with CloneZilla. And I think it's it's something to look at. If nothing yeah. else, create snapshots or, or images of your servers and computers. So at least you have that starting point. Maybe there's a bunch of packages you install or config files you really want um, you know, everything to have. You could have this base image and then just deploy it anytime you need a server. And it's great for that. Now, something that wasn't in our original notes, but I want to bring up briefly here, is mm -hmm. backing up the hypervisor systems and the VMs within there. This is one of the reasons I've always liked XCPNG, because combined with Zen Orchestra, you have an extremely complete option to do full backups, Delta backups, and all the incremental things that you want within the same software for the hypervisor. This is something I know Proxmox added more recently. Um, I don't know if you've used the Proxmox backup server to back up the uh, system, but you've been able to script it from the command line from Proxmox mm -hmm. prior. So there's ways to, Proxmox had methodologies to do it. Um, Zen has a very complete with full notification, like proper backup system. This is a shortcoming of Hyper-V and ESXi. And I've seen a few people in the comments mentioning it. And it's worth noting, uh, Veeam is kind of made their... Uh, product popular by filling in that gap for those. So it's something worth looking at. I don't use it because I'm not a big ESI, ESXi or Hyper-V person. I just don't really use uh, VMware or the Microsoft hypervisor. So right. I don't really get much into VMUSE, um, but it's out there. It's going to, it's right away. There's plenty of discussion I see in the comments going on about that um, being a popular service. I just can't speak to it real intelligently, um, but it's actually one of the uh, plus one feather in my hat for a while, like XCPNG. It natively has all that built in with Zen Orchestra, so you get a complete ecosystem where the people that wrote the software also wrote the full backups and everything else. So, yep, I, I kind of feel like you know, speaking personally, that sometimes I wish I had like a month long vacation from you know most of my to dos and, and you know all the all the things that I'm up to. Just one month, and and during that month, like every day during work, working hours, just try things like Veeam, ESXi, random stuff that I normally don't dive into. <laughs> Um, and just try them all, right? Because I want to try them all. Uh, unfortunately, reality is that um, the, the problem I face, and Tom, I think you face this too, is that there's only, there's a finite amount of time we could try certain things. Um, and, and some things, you know, are just lower on the list. Doesn't mean that they're yep. not a solution. They're probably a great solution. It's just, you know, hard to get to everything. How, how do I clone Zilla myself? I need two of me. <laughs> <laughs> I could figure that out um, and I could clone myself. That would uh, that'd be awesome. It'd be great for me, but probably um, horrifying for um, people in my circle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I kind of do feel like, you know, if I could try more things like I, I um, at one point, Tom and I are talking about OpenSense. And, and honestly, I, I like the idea of it. I, I do feel like if someone wants to fork something, that's why things are open source. You can yep. fork it. You can create your own spin of that. And everyone has the right to do that. And I want to try it out. I just unfortunately haven't. Finding the time to test every one of these is tough. Especially with backups, you need a high level of confidence that the product works, that the product can be restored. And when I speak about things like XCPNG, I can absolutely tell you I've done bare metal disaster recovery of reload it, point it back at the place where all the data was stored and bring it back. Um, so, to you know, to from a full 
you know, full bare metal restore. It's important that you test these. It's important that you have confidence. And that's one of the reasons me and Jay, we've both, you know, restored data from Backblaze. We've restored data from Snapshots. We've used SyncThing to use the revisions to uh, fix a save game gone wrong. Yeah. <laughs> or a boss level not done right. So there is definitely, because we're all speaking, you know, from things we actually use, that's one of the things I want to uh, be important. We're not just kind of talking about the product lightly. Um, we do this commercially, we do this business-wise, and we do this in our uh, labs as well, where we build things. But I say all that, then I do want to bring up Duplicati. Yeah. It's a cool tool. And I've used it for some testing. I've never put this in production, but a lot of people have asked me about it. And I think it's worth mentioning. Duplicati is a cross-platform open source backup system. It's a little weird because it runs off of a web interface. And so everything, you know, it loads a little backend server that you run locally on the computer. Then you access it via localhost and a port. But it's just pretty cool um, playing around with it. It has a very large, broad support. I mean, we've got Mac, Debian, Red Hat, uh, Windows, uh, even native Synology support on there. But being able to land it in a lot of different places, whether they're places that you host yourself or um, outside of places you host yourself, let's say places like Backblaze, um, it's kind of a neat tool if you're looking for something to create recurring backups on a schedule. The things I don't know whether or not it has is a robust notification system to let you know that it's maintaining and running and everything else. I don't know about that production, but I thought it's, it's something I'll throw on people's radar there because one, it's open source and two, it's cross-platform. So if you're looking for something um, for your home network and things like that. And you want, you know, just to back up a folder on a recurring basis uh, that you're saving data. It's a smaller tool for that, but it's pretty cool. I, I think it's something worth mentioning. Yeah, I want to check out Duplicati and it's um, it, it's it's on my list. I mean, yeah. honestly, it's on my list since just yesterday, but I, it's on my list. And I set it up this morning uh, to refresh because I, I never did a video. I don't recall at least. Maybe I did. I have 1,100 videos. Sometimes I forget. But wow. <laughs> I, I don't recall doing a video on it, but I know I've used it because I needed to do some testing for another project. And Duplicati was just kind of a cool tool to land all the data somewhere. And I'd set it up just on a demo box and thought, hey, this is a really novel thing. And it came from a lot of the comments I've gotten on my videos for people saying, hey, Tom, please check out Duplicati. Um, yeah. Same thing in, in the more larger, robust scale that I have is more what I use in a production environments. But I, I just think this one's really worth mentioning and uh, check it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the notification thing really kind of does need to be underscored here because... Um, and even someone in the uh, live note or the the live chat here mentioned that Duplicati doesn't really seem to have a great notification system. I've heard other people say that too. So um, the more people that complain about it, the more I believe it. And and other people do complain about that. Um, you know, disclaimer: I have never used Duplicati. It's on my radar. I do plan on using it, so I don't have an opinion of it. But um, I think that we really do need to underscore this again. Yes, we mentioned tester backups, but. Um, don't just assume everything is working. Um, things quietly failing is a big problem. And sometimes you just have to randomly check things. Uh, one time I deleted accidentally my entire ebook collection. Now, the good thing about that is the publisher I bought all my ebooks from, I could redownload them from that site, but that's a chore because I had like, I think I have like three or 400 of them. <laughs> I'm and, and even if I did like take the time to re-download all of them, I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm gonna accidentally like not click on one of them. And that's going to just be a, a major chore. Um, but I did accidentally delete it. And the thing is, I'm not reading my ebooks every week. So it was like maybe a couple months ago I deleted it. So right now I'm at risk because like things can just go away if I'm not checking. Thankfully, I had snapshots and it was a sync thing basically, but um TrueNAS, then FreeNAS, I had this um, snapshot recurring going back, I think, I don't know, four or five months or more. And I was able to mount that snapshot, grab that folder with all my ebooks and just put it back on one of my computers where it's supposed to be. And then SyncThing, who hasn't seen that in a long time, says, oh, you have a new folder full of ebooks. I'm going to synchronize that to uh, your you know, SyncThing main central point. And then next thing you know, every single computer has that restored. But things can quietly fail too, like monitoring systems, backup systems, like 
um, oh, you know, especially if, if there's an option to basically alert you only on error, that's a dangerous one, because what if the alerting system isn't working and there is an error and you, and you assume it's fine because, well, I'm not getting any alerts, so I think everything is good. Nah, might not be good. So I'm a big fan of just creating reminders for yourself, either in your calendar, reminder app, um, a post-it note stuck to your monitor as long as it doesn't fall off and, and, and you will actually check on it to not only just test your backups, but just kind of look at the logs, make sure things are actually happening the way you think they are and um, some kind of recurring thing to where you could just every now and then check this. And that's yes. extremely important. Do you know, and this just goes back to untested backups are wishful thinking and go ahead and walk through and test that. Make sure the files, you know, log into the remote system, make sure the files are landed there, make sure they're the same and latest version since the last backup and then test them. See if you can decrypt them. You know, all data at rest should always be encrypted. Just a reminder on that. That is one of the best ways to think about it. If the data is at rest, it's not being accessed. It should also be encrypted, but go ahead and remote into things. Try to decrypt it. Try to do it or restore. And, and also, um, I, I'm surprised I haven't mentioned this earlier, but the the three two one backup strategy, like I probably should have opened the yeah. entire podcast for that, because we, I mean, that is a good methodology, the the three two one backup strategy, where you have to have at least three copies of all the things that are important, and it should be on uh, at least two different services, one of which must be off site. Now, I don't care if you have like. 10 different um, backups on 10 different services or however crazy you want to go with it, but at least have three, right? And two of which on two different services. But that's like more to me, like a minimum, but you really should look at that because, um, and also be honest because, you know, some people, and I've done this, they'll have like an external hard drive and they'll, and maybe they're really good about this, um, backing up to it. Then it's encrypted. They take it to work where they have uh, a standby drive. They take the standby drive home with them and then they start syncing to that one. And then they swap it every day or every week or something. I've seen a lot of people do this. Um, however, you know, that if, if you get really busy and you have a lot going on, what if you forget? And you, you know, it's now a month, two months, and you've only been backing up to the one drive and then it dies. Um, well, you're out a few months of data there. So um, if you, are like me, and I'll fully admit, I, I don't procrastinate on purpose, but I will. Um, if it's not like something I hyper-focus on, um, I have to set reminders for myself to do various things. And if you don't feel like you're going to keep up on it because, you know, life happens, maybe it's time to consider one of those um, cloud backup services that you may not have considered before to take some of that liability off of you, but you still have to test it every now and then. And you still have to check it to make sure your automated process is actually backing up things you think it's backing up. Yeah. So the, it, it's just about set those reminders, do those test restores, verify that all your data is backed up, verify that it's being, uh, you know, constantly where you think it should be, you know, the latest versions. And uh, yeah, just try it out. Like I said, there's, it, it, I just can't hit home enough how many times we've come in and not been able to restore because the backups weren't processed as well. <laughs> I, I literally included checks in my Nagios server that I use. I know Nagios is old, right? But I still use it. It works for me. And it's literally checking the sync thing process on all my stuff. So, um, and obviously I have to, you know, watch Nagios to make sure that that isn't quietly failing, but it'll, it'll send me an alert that, hey, uh, sync thing's not running on this machine. So I don't, you know, edit files on that machine thinking it's being synchronized and it's not. I get an alert. Uh, yeah, sync thing isn't running, so I'm. I really need to get that running because it's not uh, synchronizing anything off that machine. Um, so there's there's different avenues here, and you have to think about what system works well for you, what services work well for you, um, what's going to play to your weaknesses. If you're like me, and you know you don't really feel fully confident in yourself to remember to do something, set a reminder for it. Whatever you have to do. But uh, definitely make sure you cover your bases. Three to one backup, um, definitely important. Test the backups, like we've mentioned, uh, 9,999 times now. Yep. <laughs> You're mentioning that that many times. Um, make sure things aren't quietly failing. Just um, validate that things are, are running the way you think they should be running. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll be in a good uh, situation. Yeah. S simple as that. All right. I think we, we reached the end of this. Yeah. Any other details we should add? I think we covered the top to bottom here. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably a bunch more things that we can add because there's so many other services out there that we're not even checking or talking yeah. about because we haven't used them. So I fully expect there to be a lot of comments like, well, what yeah. about this? And what about this? And I like that because that's what's going to alert us to the existence of other things that we might want to look at, you know, later on yeah. down the road. And maybe but, we'll do a deep dive on some of yep. them because maybe even people want us to do a deep dive on what object storage is in these buckets that we talk about. That's a topic into itself. Matter of fact, I don't know if you, you know, you can run your own object storage server with MinIO, uh, which emulates S3 and is natively built into TrueNAS. So you can actually create your own S3 targets as uh, backups that you own in Colo centers. So it actually can work as S3. You put a certificate on it. Uh, boy, that could be a fun video, right? <laughs> that, that's all a fun video. And and that just underscores what I love about the home lab community, because we, we love running servers and in, in the infrastructure. We're very passionate about the services that we personally like that get the job done for us. We like to tell other people about it. I like to hear what other people are doing, what they're using, because that alerts me to things that I wish I would have known about earlier. And sharing the ideas and strategies, being creative and how you connect the different services like um, you know, PFSense isn't made or in, in any association with Unify, but they work well together. Just so happens to be the case. And Sync thing works very well with backup solutions and how you connect these things is, is part of the fun. Yep. All right. So you've listened to another episode of the Home Lab Show. You can find all of the previous episodes at thehomelab.show. Uh, we have all the podcasts there, and this podcast is uh, able to be downloaded directly from the site or anywhere else good podcasts are hosted. There's a lot of services out there now. We're trying to get to all of them. If we're not on some platform, uh, message us and let us know why. Leave a comment. <laughs> but I think we got them all covered here. I, I think uh, so. Yeah. We, we also want to mention that we're going to try for a cadence of 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesdays for new episodes. Um, the podcast is still early. So obviously, you know, there, there's some things where, you know, Tom and or I just have to go deal with. Uh, we work in IT, obviously, but that is what we're, um, you know, at this current point in time until further notice, we're thinking Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time yep. is when you could generally expect to to uh, find new episodes on the live um, and the live stream. And then later on, obviously, via all the networks. So, yep. It's having guests on that caused the times to be a little bit more erratic. Right. <laughs> so. All right. Well, thank you everyone for watching and uh, talk to you next week. Thanks.